Good afternoon, everybody. Um, we're uh, starting the product uh, tanker panel. Um, very um, excited to introduce, by the way, my name is Amit Maratra. I'm the transportation and maritime shipping analyst at Deutsche Bank. Um, very excited to introduce this all-star lineup of, um, uh, of panelists. First, uh, uh, Tony Gurney, Anthony Gurney, CEO of Ardmore Shipping. Um, we have um, uh, Mr. Ola uh, Helgeson, CFO of uh, Concordia Maritime. Um, Mr. Jason Klopfer, Commercial Director, Navigate. Um, uh, Mr. Eddie Valentis, Chairman and CEO of Pixis Tankers. Uh, Mr. Christensen um, uh, of TORM. Um, and uh, Mr. Robert Bugby, who's waiting to join us. And then uh, Mr. Jacob Melgrade, CEO of TORM. So thank you all for joining us. Very much appreciate uh, the opportunity that you guys have to discuss the product tanker panel. So first, I guess you know um, what I was planning on doing, if it's okay, is to discuss the um, um, demand environment for product tankers, which tends to be a little bit of the more opaque um, sectors from a demand standpoint. And you can talk to us about you know expectations for ton mile demand. So obviously, there's some um, impact from uh, global refining capacity and changes to global refining capacity, and as well as um, you know um, how the trading aspects from an arbitrage perspective impact demand in the near 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 term. Um, so I'll start with you know Jason. If you could just talk to us, maybe give us a high level view of, of your demand, and then we can sort of go down the panel and see if others concur with the view or so have different perspectives. Thank you. Sure. Thanks. Good afternoon. Um, one of the interesting things I found is when we started circulating some, some discussion points that um, I made the point of carving out some of the refining capacity that's coming online in the Middle East and just looking at organic uh, ton mile demand, um, particularly that we're seeing today. And I think from Q4 onwards was the first time in a long time that we saw um, really ton mile demand, out general demand, but also ton mile demand outstripping the supply on the water and, and just a gradual tightness in the market. Uh, that's mostly been a factor of uh, export capacity increases um, as it relates to the United States and China, some in the Middle East, but obviously more to come as you start approaching the end of 2018. Um, but really it's this export capacity that has swung um, uh, ton-mile demand sharply upwards recently um, from a low basis point. Uh, you haven't seen a lot of it because a lot of it, particularly as it relates to the U.S., has been uh, has been um, compounded um, to the negative from drawing down on stocks. Um, you know, but that said, we've seen 13% increase in export volumes from the U.S., 10% increase from China, uh, and the arbitrage opportunities are there, um, certainly as it relates from the U.S., leaving uh, the United States going um, far, far east in NAPTHA, um, which uh, the ARB hasn't been open kind of over the last few months, but will open. Uh, hasn't been open due to high gasoline strength which will subside and lead to more NAFTA exports. Um, and certainly as it relates to China, that lifted uh, quotas recently for independent refiners to not only import more crude, but also to export more products. So December was a very heavy month for export volumes out of China. Uh, and uh, in January is a bit slower, but that's a function of Chinese New Year and February again growing again. Uh, and then, of course, once refining capacity comes online in the Middle East, you'll see heightened export arbitrages um, from the Middle East to go not only to China, to Japan, but, but also eventually to Europe to compete with those refineries. And I would say the last, the last point is there's been kind of steady flow of arbitrage opportunities loading in the East um, to head westward um, on distillates, but those have been quickly gobbled up on new building capacity in the Suez Max segments and VLs, 
which are which are really being are, are going to subside as we look through 2018. So, ton miles should continue to grow. So, if you, Tony, maybe I can pass it to you. You can put a little bit of a finer point. You guys have done a lot of market um, analysis that you project out to the market every every quarter and at your analyst day. Any thoughts on um, you know all that all that was said in terms of what that what that translates to into actual ton mile demand growth? And then talk about you know uh, oil being in backwardation, the impact that's had on inventory levels. I mean, I think uh, OECD inventories, all those are lowest levels since 2014. U.S. inventory. Uh, are back to sort of five-year average levels. Any thoughts on sort of the, the very near term? Because you've been pretty bullish on the product tanker market. Unfortunately, it's maybe starting to improve a little bit over the last few few months, and we'll take we'll take that. But certainly, it's been a little bit later than you've ex expected. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, <clears throat> I think we can't ignore the fundamentals. So we have you know good oil consumption growth uh, globally. You have the continued ongoing shift to refi refinery capacity to export uh, locations <clears throat> um, as opposed to import centers. Um, in addition, you know, we, we always like to make the point that the industry, our business, year after year, the trading aspect of it gets just more and more complex. And so we think that is continuing to add up to 4 to 5 percent, maybe more, demand growth underlying it. But you can't ignore the oil market dynamics. And right now, um, you know, I was trying to come up with the best word to describe how it feels. And the only word I could come up with was uh, boring. Right now, <clears throat> you know, the oil market is in, is in backwardation. Um, <clears throat> volatility is at a very low level uh, in terms of the OVX, um, and those are not really good conditions for oil trading activity. And we, we do well when oil traders do well <clears throat> and when they're really busy. So <clears throat> I think that, um, you know, there, there is a lot of ongoing development of trade. Um, it tends to be a little bit short haul and fairly efficient at the moment, so I think that's holding back. Um, <clears throat> I will make the point that it seems like there's ever-increasing demand on north-south legs, let's say, for example, from the U.S. Gulf down to the west coast of uh, South America, east coast South America, as well as Europe down to uh, West Africa, uh, AG East Africa. So I think this north-south development is an interesting one. And even though the volumes aren't huge, the distances are long and the, and the delays when you get there are still significant. So, so we think that's an important driver. Um, so I don't know if that answers it, but <clears throat> I think, we, you know, actually it's good news that it feels a bit boring at the moment. It feels a bit like mid-2014. Um, what that means is that when it gets a little less boring, in other words, when there's more, um, more uh, volatility and, and maybe a return to contango uh, you know, on, in, in futures, um, that, that should be a significant um, uh, increase in, in ton-mile demand for our type of ships, and that, that could then be the spark. Let's move on to Ola, if you can talk about sort of your perspective on, on the demand side of the equation. Yeah. I think uh, yeah, most of this has been said, but I think the, the key thing here is to consider when the drawdown cycle of the inventories will actually, you know, decrease or actually stop. Then the market will pick up, and volatility will just kick in, and the arbitrage will really start going. So that's what we're trying to figure out. When will that happen? Yeah. Uh, we believe that that will start to happen the second half of this year. It's always the second half of the year that we're yeah, in. Um, that's right. Tends to be. <laughs> it's, it's seasonal. Yeah. <laughs> Let me bring in uh, Mr. Bugby here. Um, likes to talk about the um, uh, the palm oil trade and and um, you know and, and and the sort of idiosyncratic trades in the in the product tanker trade that maybe um, are less known. If he could talk about you know some of that side and also we mentioned Chinese refinery additions earlier. Are those um, mostly meant for export, or are some of those refinery additions being uh, essentially in place to replace some of the older, smaller teapot, refi uh, teapot refineries? Last question first. I mean, the Chinese is both 
for domestic and both for exporting too. And it's just a great thing for the product market that you've got another big geographical area with refinery capacity and history says whether it's Europe or the United States that stimulates seaborne trade. I think that the markets now are moving, you know, the palm oil is now no longer an ancillary market. It's a big market for for, for all of us here and the you know who have MRs. But I think I would add to the demand side something that is um, you know, and Jakob will see this too, is that in the last sort of two, three months, especially now in this last month, we've had something where the big LR2s are now finally starting to work and emerge, and you've got a more natural trading with them. And they've done something historically they've never done before, where they've traded independently from crude oil. So what we haven't ever seen is the VLCC market fall to $2,000 a day and in that same period, the LR2 market actually move up into the you know, mid-high teens on a, you know, not on an AG East route, but on a triangulated route. That's very encouraging because that's really starting for the first time to show that what the others have been talking about, that the product market is actually starting to turn because the only way you can drive an LR2 market up independent of everything else is if you've got good, strong industrial demand underneath you, especially in the East. Right. And do you think this this little spark that we've seen in the in the product market over the last you know couple months or so is the start of something, or do you think there's still going to be sort of lumpy fits and starts until we get to really a recovery in the back half of the year from a demand standpoint? That's too hard to tell. All you can see is things that are different. You shouldn't have had the MR market. I mean, most analysts quite rightly, four or five weeks ago, was talk, were talking about how the MR market could sell off because you had refinery turnarounds. The MR market actually strengthened during that period. So finally, you're getting this period where the headline demand is starting to show up. It's, more, it's like watching a, a painting being, being, being made, that you've got less and less excess inventories, and, and so, therefore, that point is just coming nearer. You know, you're so, in products, we're so affected by weather or arbitrage, as the guys have said, that, you know, it may take a little while to fire on all the cylinders, but slowly the cylinders are being turned on. I mean, you couldn't have dreamt six months ago that you could have a strong market in May. That's possible now if you turn into the summer plastic seasons for the LR2s, the East market trading well. You could get that easily now. Let's get Torm in here a little bit to talk about, hopefully, um, um, we've talked about the demand side, but one of the other aspects of demand could potentially come from the regulation, the 2020 sulfur regulation, and what the potential uh, demand environment that create for um, marine gas and, and, and product tanker demand from that perspective. Have you any thoughts there you could share from a, from a demand standpoint? So I think what we can say is that clearly uh, the quality names up here will all uh, qualify to meet uh, all the regulation which is out there. What we've seen so far is that regulation in itself I don't think will drive, for instance, uh, the scrapping of vessels, if that's what you're pointing to. I think that uh, the market and the underlying fundamentals of the market will be the factors that will actually dictate whether you see scrapping age go down or go up. What we've seen recently over the past year and year and a half 
is that for the larger segments that we're in, the LR1, the LR2, average scrapping age is actually going down a little because those are the markets that's been under most stress. Mm. And I think going forward, going into regulation around water ballast, around the uh, 2020 sulfur cap, it will be the same tendency that if the market is, should have not uh, improved by that time, clearly this could potentially accelerate uh, uh, scrapping. But if markets in general are good, we will all find ways, investors, ship owners alike, will find ways to uh, take on that capex and continue trading the vessel. So I don't think that there is one answer uh, to this. I think it's positive that you need to make certain investments uh, in our sector to, to continue uh, trading, but I think that it'll be the underlying markets that will fundamentally drive whether it's affecting uh, the scrapping age. Yeah. And if we look at the, the product taker fleet today, I mean, the average, it's, it's the oldest it's been in over a decade. Um, this year, based on our numbers, this year will be the first year where the number of ships turning 15 outpaces the number of new deliveries. And so clearly there's a good story on the supply side, um, and there's maybe a good story emerging on the scrapping side over as you move towards the end of this decade. Um, you know, any, 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 are you guys as ex more excited about the supply side than you are about the demand side? Because clearly it seems like the order book just keeps on shrinking and there's yard capacity that's being absorbed by other sectors that may be uh, limiting the new, new, new uh, deliveries that can, can naturally be delivered into the market over the next couple of years. Um, why, don't we, why don't we do with uh, um, Valencio since we haven't actually, he hasn't spoken yet, sorry. Thanks, I mean, um, yeah, as far as the MR segment, which we follow very closely, um, February this year, um, the order book stands at about 6%. This is the latest we have from the analysts that uh, um, advises. So it, it, it looks good. So this is spread for two years at 3% annually. Um, also regarding a point regarding the low sulfur uh, coming in 2020, by then uh, it is it's estimated that approximately 95 MRs will be uh, approximately 20 years of age. So this is a significant number of vessels, potential candidates for uh, scrapping, or um, at least to be obsolete. So um, um, the supply uh, equation for the MR looks good for the next uh, couple of years at least. Um, Korea seems to be um, just two shipyards building MRs, so um, 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 availability is uh, limited for uh, slots, as you said. So um, it looks good. Is that, is that outlook, Tony, for you a good time to buy? I mean, I think Robert's uh, in the market selling a couple, couple ships. A little bit out of your... Can I get a commission? <laughs> a little bit out of your MR, you yeah. know, uh, but, but any thoughts on where asset values are just given the supply outlook and maybe more of a relatively benign demand, demand environment? Yeah, I think um, it's generally a good time to buy. Uh, I think there's a difference between the newer eco-design ships in terms of price expectations and the older ones. We bought a ship in November that was admittedly nine years old, but bit old, but a great price, and financed it very attractively. <clears throat> so we, we, we were happy to do that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think obviously uh, the reason why prices are where they are today is because of capital constraints. Uh, so it's a bit of a catch-22. 
and Robert, Tony just said it's a good time to buy, but you're on, on the record recently saying that you're looking maybe to sell some vessels. Is that, a couple vessels, sorry. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that to crystallize, show the market that there is a, crystallize the, the, the arbitrage between your asset values and your market value, or um, any other thoughts on sort of why, why it would be the right time now to maybe dispose of assets, um, albeit you're a very large company, so maybe it's just a portfolio mix. Any thoughts there? Um, sure. I mean, I don't think we made any secret that we, we think that asset values have gone up since November, December. Um, we are trading substantially below what we think the net asset value is. There's a bear raid going on from the convertible hedge funds in trying to pressure us into to doing things. And at the same side, you know, we're buying from our affiliated companies. We're selling two ships that are a couple of our older ships in our fleet. And through that, yes, we'll establish what the net asset value is. We will create liquidity at a price substantially above where our stock price is. And we will create more flexibility, and I have to word it right, to provide us with the ability to perhaps take advantage of some of the arbitrage opportunities between our stock price and the net asset value price. Is that worded carefully enough? <laughs> but it's nothing to do, we think asset values are gonna go up. I mean, it's a, you know, sometimes you have to do what you have to do. You're a public company. We're, we're trading at almost half our NAV with questions related, you know, with a lack of understanding from the general market, our search shareholders are therefore going through some unnecessary pain. We started buying the stock last week from the affiliate position, so let's go. We'll take the shorts on. Yeah. Okay. Um, Jacob, if I could just ask you on the, um, you know, the free fleet renewal side of things, um, you know, how is your strategy evolving from just given the, the, val the, the asset value environment that we have? Um, there's some positives and negatives. I'm just uh, wondering where you think we are in that cycle and, and where maybe the, uh, the second half of the year could go and, and what the opportunities are for you. So I think in general, we look at what is the right investment at any given time. Robert pointed to, you know, these uh, curves go up and down. Currently, we've seen an uptick. Uh, we are still optimistic that that is, uh, that is with underlying freight rates still at least playing out uh, as we expected, that it will still be a positive territory. The way we manage it is simply to look at any deal in its own right. So any investment, we'll look at what is, what is sort of the expected return that we could get from it. Does it fit with our customer base? Does it fit in our portfolio? We're not shy around vessel age or anything else. We probably, over the last three, four, five years, have managed our fleet in a way so, on an average, our fleet age has stayed the same. But we have, with that intact, we've still, at the same time, had our sort of operational skills under control and outperformed the market. Uh, that's how we think about the operational side. And as we look at assets, we just want them to fit into that category of being outperformers on a return on investment basis. And Ola, um when, when people talk about consolidation and shipping, uh, which seems to be kind of a, a buzzword, and obviously there have been some big deals in the tanker space for sure, broke product and crude, um, is that 
I mean, do you think we'll get to a point in the product tanker market, or even the crude market for that matter, but that's the next panel, uh, product tanker market where um, there's actually some strength from consolidation, or do you think that's just maybe a misused term in the industry? I think uh, size matters, actually. I think, uh, I mean, we all want to get to efficiency, and sometimes that takes uh, some size. Um, but it's, it's not all about size. You also can find ways to, you know, be in really good pools and still be a fairly small company. But uh, I think the overall trend will go towards more uh, bigger and yeah, bigger and bigger. Size is maybe there's some diseconomies of scale, I would argue, mm. from size yeah. um, in shipping. I mean, maybe I'll put that to Robert Bugby, who has the largest product tanker fleet in the world. And, um, you know, how do you think about having such a large fleet relative to the operating leverage inherent in the shipping business model from a risk standpoint? I think that we're only just discovering some of the benefits ourselves in the last, um, you know, actually last few weeks or so is that, um, you know, since we put the two LR2 fleets together, we're able to negotiate better with the charters. We're able to create contracts of a freightman that enable better triangulation, better utilization. That certainly couldn't have been done off the fleet that we'd had before. That's a clear benefit of consolid both consolidation and size because the LR2 market is quite a small market. I think both Torm and ourselves benefit a lot from that market being a relatively small owned market. I think in the MRs, um, you know, I think you need a certain critical mass for, for information, for ability to get charters. Um, but it, it all depends on you know, on quality, the, the, the product tanker fleet is more consolidated than the ownership appears. I mean, there are a number of companies here, you, you know, navigate themselves who run pools higher than their ownership, Torm that run a pool higher than their ownership. Right. Scorpio tankers may own 109 ships in Scorpio tankers, but we run over 180 product tankers. So the market in the product market, and I think it's important to understand that yes, the product market has been down, but not one day in this last period has the product market produced income to anybody at this table that has been below their operating costs and their interest. So every single day, the product market has been contributing to capital. Unlike what we've seen in the dry market, unlike what we're seeing in the crude oil market, so what's exciting about this is when the demand comes, it's going to be an immediate movement upwards in price because there is more consolidation than may first appear already in products. A less psycho psychological effect, if you will. Yeah, I think it's not. Why not? I mean, you can see it. Each, each, each of these markets, if you look on the graphs, is selling, taking longer to sell down and less time to, to bounce back out. For the, you know, we talked about demand, we talked about supply. I'd like to talk about, if it's okay, we have a lot of CEOs and presidents on this panel um, of, of large companies and small companies as well. Um, I think from my standpoint as an equity analyst, my conversations around with investors are more about what could go wrong. Where's the downside risk in the business model? And I think 
you know, many of you guys have different approaches to risk management, different approaches to managing the balance sheet and the, and the debt repayments. So maybe, I mean, um, uh, Valentios, we haven't, sorry, uh, maybe you can start with you. It's a little bit smaller, but uh, how do you approach, you know, running your business from a, not just a chartering strategy or a commercial standpoint, but also maybe from a balance sheet standpoint, and has that changed at all, given the downturn that we've seen, not just in tankers, but obviously in dry bulk, which has caused some contagion across the investment space? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're a small company, but uh, we run the company as um, we used to before we became public two years ago. Uh, no change in that. Um, um, the policy has always been um, uh, ideally balanced between spot and uh, period uh, exposure. Uh, lately, it's been more period. We've seen a, 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 a nice window, uh, end of December, beginning uh, January. Uh, we thought the next couple of uh, quarters will be a bit, a bit volatile for the product sector. Therefore, we decided to fix out on time charters, sh short time charters. We take the view that uh, Q3 this year will be much better for product uh, tankers, as explained by the co-panelists uh, earlier. So, uh, you know, risk-wise, we think that uh, uh, we should have uh, um, visible cash flows, and we do that by securing uh, time charters for the vessels. And Tony, you have, um, I would say, a very almost um, uber-conservative way that you manage your company from a balance sheet standpoint. Um, I think you're one of the few companies that has a book break-even that's actually higher than your cash break-even, given um, you know um, how you depreciate your assets and your debt amortization, the relationship between the two. Any thoughts on, you know, you would argue that you're almost being overly conservative today, given where we are in the asset value cycle. And the right way to create value for a shipping company over time is to lever up in the downturn and delever in an upturn when you're actually delevering in a downturn and delevering in an upturn. So how, how do you think about that? And, and you know, I know you can sleep at night, but are you leaving money on the table as a, as a result? It's a tough question. Um, <clears throat> you know, possibly, but we, we don't feel that we're underlevered. We feel it's about right. Um, it doesn't feel like we've, we're swimming in cash and, um, or, or anything like that. I, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I, don't th I don't think our, our view is, you know, on risk management is very different from other people on the table, um, um, you know, here. I think it's a matter of just balancing business risk and, and, and financial risk, right? So if you, as we do now, we have a 100% spot uh, strategy that actually also uses up a lot of working capital. You need to keep cash reserves for that. Uh, but you just have to match that against an appropriate, appropriate financial strategy. I think we're very cautious that we don't engage in additional leverage, which is quite expensive, because that, that actually ends up really eating away at the company over time. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the MRs actually tend to be a much more stable segment than, than, than bigger ships, especially crude. Um, I think that um, that's, you know, as, as Robert mentioned, uh, you know, even th these, through these relatively, you know, uh, meager times in terms of uh, performance, um, you know, the, the cash flow generated has actually been uh, quite substantial. Um, so I don't know if that answers that. I, I guess we, we don't feel overly conservative. Uh, we, are, we are very focused on, on basically ma maximizing returns and building intrinsic value in the business. And, you know, we, we have a certain philosophy on risk that, that underpins that. I mean, in terms of um, what I mean by risk, I mean, in certain ways, is the amount of equity you have in your balance sheet relative to the market value of the assets. And so it seems like the industry is moving more towards sort of more equity, less debt, um, which, which uh, you know, obviously increases some of the hurdle rates as well. Um, any thoughts on sort of how you think about 
capital structure and financing, you know, new opportunities and what the what the you know the bank financing market's like. What are the requirements from LTV standpoint and how that's evolving? Yeah. So being in the in the tanker business, of course, you need to have a very solid balance sheet with a lot of cash, but also good to have a good bank relations, of course, and not gearing the company too much. I mean, that is, as a base is fundamental, so to speak. Um, because when you need to grow in the down cycle, you need to have the possibility to do it. And if you get pressured, it's going to cost you money. So that has been our strategy and policy over all the years. So that's why we've never gone to the stock market and asked for more money. We just played it safe, you can say. I think that's good advice. Robert, I'll move it over to you in terms of that same question. I mean, you guys, you've seen every you know, whether it's over-levered, under-leveraged, I mean, you've seen it all uh, in multiple cycles. I mean, where do you think the industry is now from a, from a risk management standpoint, and how does that kind of, um, you know, impact cycles? I would imagine that shipping could, over time, structurally become less of a boom and bust cycle, given the, the fact that companies are getting a little bit more conservative in how they finance their acquisitions. Could do, but over time, we always see at this stage of a cycle that people want things with no leverage and little leverage and then as soon as things start improving they want a lot of operating leverage I mean it's that's just the fashion of the times um, I think that so we're not in the product market I mean sting has you know last count 180 million dollars over 180 million dollars of cash on its balance sheet it has brand new assets so, you know, I'm not really kept up at night. I mean, I'm kept up at night. I have a puppy and two eight-year-old twins. Of course, I'm kept <laughs> up at night. But, you know, I'm not kept up stressing about Sting. It's balance sheet. I, I, I keep myself amused at night by working out how I can take advantage of this crazy situation between all of us on this table in one way or another have asset values and operating structures higher than the stock price. Ours is extreme. That's what keeps me up at night at the moment. Stock price, okay. Um, are there any questions in the audience uh, for these guys? Um, yep, please go ahead. was not Deutsche Bank, by the way. <laughs> sure, I think that's a constantly constant worry in, the, in this last sort of couple of weeks that, yes, that you openly have, um, as I said, there's an attempt at a bear raid that's doing quite well. You even have funds that are going around talking to investment banks, even approaching the company saying, you guys have to raise equity, et cetera, et cetera, because they're assuming that the company has to immediately act because it has a convertible note due in 18 months' time. But the company itself doesn't really have to immediately act. It has a bunch of levers to, to use, that there is a difference between you know, it has liquidity, has a lot of cash on its balance sheet at the moment. It has positive cash flow in that earnings are above interest and OPEX. And it has 109 ships out there, 
we're selling two that, thank you very much, that'll establish a position. We have a lot of our debt is actually pretty low loan to values related to our, our, our overall value on the ships so that you can create even more liquidity inside. And we have time. So I think it's not a great bet to assume that we're about to come with a, you know, $400 million equity offering or a $350 million repricing of our bonds. Not the least, I doubt very much that we're coming this week considering that insiders filed for more insider purchases last week and the SEC would disapprove strongly of us buying stock to front run an offering the following week. Robert, you do have, to be fair, um, the company does, Scorpio Bulkers, Scorpio Tankers, does have a history of um, uh, using the equity markets when the windows have been open to uh, proactively um, uh, de-risk. And so it's not, I wouldn't imagine if the market has a view that there's a potential for equity, are you, are you just basically saying that there's no, no chance of that? Because no, I'm not saying that at all. Of course there's a chance of that. But I would clearly say the equity market's unopened, okay? So to go back to, to that point, it's not open. I think the most consistent thing is that we have, to understand is that the insiders sit on the equity side of the balance sheet. That's the thing that I would start with. I would start with the insiders in Scorpio Balkers have built a plus a 25% position in the company. Insiders in Sting have, have recently built up to 11% of the company. So you're never going to say never to issuing equity, but there's little, but you don't have to go and issue $400 million of equity. You don't have to do it now. And you're certainly, the equity markets are shut at this point. Um, any other questions uh, for the product tanker panel? You can ask whatever question you want. This is, you know, we can get personal if we want up here too. There's no problem. I don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, one of the last questions I had um, for Jason, you talked about the import quotas for, for China uh, uh, teapot refineries. Um, those are gone higher, obviously, for 2018. Crude imports in China are you know, up 20%. They're at a record level uh, in the month of January. Um, do you think there's you know, a significant amount of demand um, in terms of export capacity coming out of China uh, as a result of these higher quotas? The short answer is yes. I think that that's where we can start talking a little bit more about arbitrage opportunities and, and really the trading aspect of the product tanker market, which is obviously always there, but even evolving more dramatically. I mean, there's a, there's a distinct likelihood over time that this export capacity could bring a lot of jet, for example, into Europe um, to compete with those refiners. And certainly, if you look at the amount of volume that's been brought in, um, from the Atlantic Basin, um, from a crude perspective, if it goes to service these these heightened quotas, um, you know it's very positive for the crude market down the line. But certainly, from an export capacity, from a product tanker perspective, I mean this is all incremental ton mile demand growth. It services intra intra Asia trade um, and potentially long haul movements, and, you know, into Europe and the like. So yes. 
do you think with the with the risk of the um, the, with the crude market doing what it's doing and kind of being so weak, is there a risk that some of the some of that converts into you know product capacity and maybe capacity is actually not as low as maybe people think over the next year or so? In terms of just supply numbers, yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, people are talking a pretty big game right now with regard to scrappings and what's going to happen. You know, I think it's and I think speak for the entire firm that it's much more a function of crude at the moment than it is products. If you look at just the underlying dynamics when you have VLCCs earning as much as MRs and the scrap price is VLCCs just incrementally more advantageous, right, to go and scrap that ship. So I think, you know, the, the construct where product in any way um, doesn't benefit from the scrappings we're seeing at crude or, or the constriction in supply on crude, um, I, I don't think, I think if anything it's going to benefit, right, it's going to help the product market. I don't see where it, where it hurts it. Um, any last questions for the product tanker panel? Thank you very much, guys. Really appreciate your time. Thank you.